Lopate at Large. I'm Ludith Lopate. Michael Waldman's The Fight to Vote was the first book to trace the history of voting rights from the founders' debates to the civil rights era to the consequences of the Supreme Court's gutting of the Voting Rights Act. It was praised by the late John Lewis when it was published in 2016, and it's just been released in a new updated edition, complete with two new chapters that put the events of the last two years into historical context. It's published by Simon & Schuster and brings Mr. Waldman, the president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, to our show now. Welcome. Are you there? Uh, After two years of this, you would think I would know how to unmute myself. (laughs) Okay, well... uh, Okay, we'll keep uh, it unmuted. Okay, one more, one more reason to want uh, want the, the pandemic to. Uh, be in our <laughs> yes, well, you would have. It's great to be with you. Yeah, well, you would have been in our studio in the past. You point out that the fight of who can vote has been at the center of American politics since the nation's founding, and you begin your book with the debate at the Constitutional Convention over whether state legislatures should be given all the power to set the rules or whether the federal government should have the authority to override decisions by state politicians. It sounds like something we're still dealing with today. Very much so. Uh, and, the you know, this this current moment, the, the debates we've seen in Congress, the fight on voting in the states, much of it, though not all of it, is very much part of what's been going on from the beginning in our country's history. Um, when we started out as a country, uh, as we all know, we didn't have anything close to what we would regard as a democracy today. Only white men who owned property could vote. Um, and even at that moment, there were these powerful democratizing ideas, uh, starting with the framing of it in the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, where Jefferson wrote that uh, government is legitimate only if it rests on the consent of the governed. And of course, as we know, they were at best hypocritical in writing that in that he was at that moment being attended to by a 14-year-old enslaved boy. Uh, but but the idea was so powerful that it took on a life of its own and impelled democratization in our country uh, from the start. And one of the places where that played out was at the Constitutional Convention, uh, there's a provision in the Constitution called the Elections Clause. It's not a terribly well-known provision because it hasn't ever been usually controversial, although it was actually very controversial at the time. And what it says is that uh, the legislatures of the states shall set the time, place, and manner of federal elections, but that the Congress can at any moment override that. And Madison, James Madison, insisted that that be in the Constitution precisely because he knew that state legislatures were corrupt, that they would be captured by what they called factions, what we would call political parties, and that they would do things like that we would regard as vote suppression and gerrymandering. Now, of course, they didn't call it that because, among other things, Eldridge Jerry was standing there, uh, and they hadn't coined the word yet. And and, and Eldridge Jerry, we should point out, uh, talked about the excess of democracy at the time. Right. And, and he, and, and the debate in the Constitutional Convention was, uh, representatives from the slave plantations of South Carolina wanted to take this provision out because they wanted to be able to do gerrymandering in their state. They wanted to malapportion their legislature. And, 
uh, uh, Madison just felt that it was really important that the state legislatures be curbed in their power to abuse people's rights in elections. And that is, of course, carried forward very much to today, where you have a wave of laws in the states being pushed by people enthralled to Donald Trump's big lie of the stolen election. Uh, it, these are uh, voter suppression laws that are racially targeted, of course, as we know. And on top of that, laws that would change who count the votes, that would subvert the election process. You have Congress, uh, many of us believe, needing to take action um, and last week failing to do so. And what you have, interestingly... Uh, well, but can I stop you for a second? Yeah. You point out that Madison wrote a provision into the Constitution that gave the federal government the power to step in to override policies that tilt the vote. So why doesn't that apply now? Why are we even debating it today? Well, because, uh, you know, some of our uh, some people don't want that to be the case. <laughs> so you see. But it's in the see, Constitution. It is in the Constitution. You know, they what they say is, well, the word legislature is in there. And that means they must have meant that only legislatures have the power to do this. And it's constitutionally nonsensical. Um, no court has ever found it. They they dress it up with a name called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, except it's not a doctrine because no court has ever ruled on it. But right now, about at least four of the conservative, highly conservative Supreme Court justices seem to think it's a pretty good idea that basically state courts, state constitutions, state governors, the federal courts, uh, nobody can tell a state legislature what to do, even if it is passing abusive laws and trying to cut off the rights of its people. That's what they say. And if you, you know, you start to hear this move from the legal fringes of the conservative legal blogs to Republican politicians going on Fox News and saying this. Um, and you, you heard it in the debate over the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act. You heard people saying this was a federal power grab when, in fact, it is uh, both constitutionally very sound and also in our country's history. And this is one of the kind of lessons of the whole um, story of, of the fight over voting. There are just moments where strong action by the federal government, there's no substitute for that if you want to stop uh, people in power from abusing people's rights. How important to today's situation was the Supreme Court's 2013 decision to strike down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act? It was very important and in ways that your listeners are probably familiar with, very destructive. Um, you know, so the, the story uh, – the book tells the story of this endless fight over voting rights uh, and who can participate and also how how votes are counted and how they can participate going back to the beginning. And the, well, when, when the first debate was over, whether, only, whether there should be universal suffrage, as Ben Franklin pushed for, or whether the vote should be kept in the hands of the wealthy, as John Adams wanted. You know, it's exactly right. And in, in 1776, when that declaration and its revolutionary ideas were put out, each of the states had to draw up their own constitution. And in Pennsylvania, it was the most radical constitution in the world at the time. And they eliminated the property requirement for men voting. And Ben Franklin wrote the 
Constitution of Pennsylvania. And he explained it. He said, there's a man who owns a jackass. It's worth $50. So the man can vote. Then the jackass dies. Ben Franklin explained (laughs) the man is older. He's wiser, but the jackass is dead. So the man cannot vote. So who he asked really has the right to vote the man or the jackass. (laughs) One more reason we all love Ben Franklin up in Massachusetts. We're still dealing with jackasses. (laughs) We're still dealing with jackasses. And I've seen some versions of the quote that that even uses a different word, but that, that, Mm -hmm. that, that was what Franklin said. And then people said to John Adams, who was writing the constitution up in Massachusetts, Hey, why don't you do that? You know, eliminate the property requirements so that, um, you know, so, so that uh, poor men and working class men can vote. And, and Adams was aghast by that idea. And he said, if we do that, women will demand the right to vote. <laughs> Lads of 18 will think themselves insufficiently uh, attended to. They will demand the right to vote. And men who hath not a farthing to their name will think themselves worthy of an equal voice in government. They will demand a right to vote. John Adams said, he said, there will be no end of it. And that's basically the story of the country. There was no end of it. So well, first, the, the, first, it was the fight to give uh, the vote to people without property. Then black men won the right to vote. And then, of course, as we know, it was taken away after the Civil War. Women won the right to vote. But the great triumph was the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the most effective civil rights law in American history in many respects, until, as you say, it was gutted in 2013, uh, by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Shelby County decision, uh, which uh, was one of the things that set the stage for uh, for what's going on today. In just the past year, 34 law- laws that add new voting restrictions were passed in 19 states, and they were all pushed by Republicans. Democrats hoped to prevent those restrictions with federal legislation, but now that effort has failed. Uh, but But doesn't American democracy rest on the right to vote? You write the idea that every citizen should have an equal voice, one person, one vote. Well, it does, uh, but it's taken a lot of effort to get our our system to live up to that ideal. Um, You know, one thing people say when they look at our Constitution is is it doesn't protect the right to vote explicitly. Um, and, And the one they wrote in 1787, that is true. Although even then it envisioned the House of Representatives being elected by the people and being uh, elected based on districts drawn due to a census. And all of that was a very democratizing idea. But but as we know, so much of the Constitution was written after 1787. And there actually are five constitutional amendments that uh, do talk about protecting the right to vote. And even beyond that, giving the right to vote for the U.S. Senate, uh, which it didn't used to be the case. So there's been a steady push to make sure that the Constitution really does um, explicitly as possible um, protect that right to vote. Now, wasn't uh, was the first voting rights victory won by angry white working class men led by Democrats, the Democrats of that time anyway, in the era of Andrew Jackson? Ironically, given the politics now, because because they would probably most of them be Trump supporters <laughs> and Trump had Andrew Jackson's bust in the Oval Office, I think. But, yes, that that very first win for working class and poor white men was when voting rights became the organizing issue for the what became the modern Democratic Party. And, it, and it's one of the interesting lessons uh, is that it was not 
only outside agitators, but it was in that case, certainly partisan politicians, people like Martin Van Buren up in Albany, uh, who pushed for expanded uh, political participation. And one of the one of the lessons of history, and this goes to the question even of the fights today, is, um, you know, bipartisanship is nice. But a lot of the greatest victories for voting rights over the years have been fought for by one political party or another over the objections of the other party. And then people change. In the 1850s, didn't Abraham Lincoln oppose equal suffrage? Um, he, uh, yeah. He, you know, he, Lincoln, he, changed, he changed only during the Civil War. He, very much so. And, and so that Lincoln opposed equal suffrage, um, but the war changed him as it did so many people. One out of five Union soldiers by the end was a black man. Uh, when he gave his famous second inaugural, the audience was largely black. Um, and he gave a speech right after the end of the war uh, to celebrate the victory at Appomattox, the surrender at Appomattox. He gave a speech from the second floor of the White House um, uh, and uh, said in the speech, you know, I I now support voting rights for black men, for some black men. And, and he said, no man is good enough to govern another man without the other's consent. So, now, two days before he assassinated Lincoln, didn't John Wilkes Booth hear the, the president speak about equal voting rights and declare this is the last speech he will ever give? He was there. He heard that. And he tried to get the guy standing next to him to shoot Lincoln on the spot. And when that man would not do that, Booth said, well, then I, by God, I will put him through. And two days later, as you say, he went to Ford's theater. It's not that John Wilkes Booth was a big Abe Lincoln fan before that, but uh, uh, it was voting rights and the centrality of that uh, and what it meant. That was the spark for the assassination. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Michael Waldman, whose latest book is The Fight to Vote, published by uh, Simon & Schuster. Now, although Lincoln was a Republican, the latest push to restrict the rights of some to vote um, has been largely in a Republican effort. And didn't it begin when Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of Georgia, signed a restrictive bill seated in front of a painting of a slave plantation? That was this incredible moment last year. Was that course, intentional? Uh, I think it was like uh, it was Freudian. <laughs> but I don't know if it was intentional. I don't think they planned that out. I think it was ferreted out by a... A, a reporter, but I think it also didn't occur to them the environment they were in. He was sitting there flanked on either side by six white men in suits. And when a black state legislator knocked on the door to come in to the room, she was arrested yeah. by uh, Georgia state troopers um, and ca- carried out of the Capitol. Um, it was rather a, a graphic, um, a, a graphic tableau showing what was at stake. This recent notion that there's a lot of voting voter fraud and therefore there need to be restrictions on voting and those restrictions somehow uh, invariably wind up targeting black voters and Latino voters and Asian voters. That didn't start with Donald Trump. That's been for the last two decades or so. But Trump took it, as we know, to a uh, a, a, an intense and absurd degree um, and claimed, as we know, that the election was stolen despite all 
evidence otherwise. And and despite his own Homeland Security Department confirming that it was the most secure election in history um, and driven by that big lie, we had Trump's claims. We had driven by the big lie, the insurrection. And then uh, starting at the beginning of last year in all these states, a big push uh, to pass new restrictive voting laws. And the first one that passed, and it was very controversial, was in Georgia, mm. at, where Brian Kemp, again, did, was sitting in front of this painting of a slave mm. plantation. And, and you know, these laws, some of them are worse than others. There is a lot of controversy about them. But they, unfortunately, uh, wind up invariably targeting voters of color. Well, ironically, uh, didn't the 15th Amendment guarantee the right to vote regardless of race enacted by the Republican Party as a way to preserve election victories that relied on black votes? Back then, after the Civil War, after Lincoln's assassination, the Republicans were uh, the party that was pushing for expanded voting rights. Um, and after the 15th Amendment, it, 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 it is not something everybody knows uh, but there was a flowering of democracy in the South. Voter participation rates were very high, and they were black men uh, elected to Congress, elected to legislature as black governor. Black voter turnout near ninety percent. Yeah, and 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 it was taken away. Um, it was taken away by terrorism, by the Ku Klux Klan, which was basically an arm of the Democratic Party at that point. Um, by by a deal to end Reconstruction. But one of the things but, that... But, but wait, but wait. Didn't Congress uh, get, by the 15th Amendment, the power to enforce state, enforce state voting rights by using the U.S. Army to guard polling locations in the South? Um, and, why and would the, why did that end? Did. It ended uh, because the, the South didn't like it very much, at least the white Southerners didn't like it very much. And in 1876, there was a very close presidential election, and uh, it, it was unclear who won. Mm -hmm. And in the deal that the two parties made to decide the election, they said, well, the Republicans, who were the voting rights party, but who'd gotten kind of fatigued with, with uh, protecting the rights of black men in the South, um, the Republicans got the White House for one more term. And in exchange, they ended Reconstruction. They ended the use of the troops. They traded away basically the rights of black voters for the for one more term in the White House. And even then, and this is something I, I think I was surprised to learn in researching the book. Even then, it was not an immediate and not an instant thing that happened. By 1890... In a state like Mississippi, half the voters, more than half the voters, were black. And what happened then, and this is an unfortunate echo of things right now, is um, Congress was controlled by the Republicans, and they passed a federal voting rights bill through the House, and it went to the Senate. The Henry Cabot Lodge's bill, wasn't it? That's right. And his opponents, they, 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 they called it the Lodge Force Bill. It's, you know, it's not, it's like Trump's nicknames. They gave it a nickname. They called it the force bill and it was filibustered to death. And it was the first big successful 33 day filibuster of a federal voting rights bill. Mm. And when that happened, that was both a, that signaled to the Southern states, Hey, you better get serious about this disenfranchisement stuff. And that, at that point, 
uh, the Southern states passed the vote, the Jim Crow laws. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, we know that what followed was seven decades of disenfranchisement and discrimination. Um, and, and, uh, it, it did not happen until that point, but it was partly because Congress was in that moment unable or unwilling to actually follow through and protect the rights uh, of the people in the South. But you point out in your book that it wasn't just the South that was culpable. By the 1920s, 13 northern states required literacy tests to vote, largely because of fear of of immigrant influence? Yeah, and one of the stories that's so interesting is this, we are used to thinking in some respects about this fight over voting rights as being so heavily about race. And of course, it is heavily about race, but it's about many other, in the, over the course of the years, it has been about class and the role of money and economic power in our system, about religion and immigration. Um, and in the late 1800s, at the same time that the Jim Crow laws were passing in the South, the northern cities, of course, New York and others, were changing, were being flooded with immigrants. Um, the, the immigrants were Catholic, mostly, and also Jewish, uh, or from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe. And the uh, the Protestant stock of the country was very alarmed by this, and they passed laws in the northern states to make it harder for these new immigrants to vote. They weren't as bad as, as the Jim Crow laws, but but they took effort. They took actions uh, of that kind. One of the things in the in the book. Um, Your dog is objecting to what you're saying. My dog is objecting strenuously to this kind of voter suppression. There's no question. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, in New York City, they had voter registration laws I- implemented just in New York City, not in upstate New York, uh, which was Republican, and they had voter registration on Yom Kippur because they thought that that would stop the socialists who were largely Jewish from from uh, voting. Um, you saw laws like that. You saw literacy tests. And, and but didn't literacy- some states refuse to redraw electoral districts after a new census to lessen the impact of immigration on urban areas while allotting greater comparative electoral power to small towns, which you call silent gerrymandering? Well, so we have more people who are immigrants or the children of immigrants in this country than we have had since the 1920s. Well, in the 1920s, they had the 1920 census, and it showed for the first time that cities had more people than the countryside. And so the result was Congress never redrew the lines. (laughs) They they just did not have – they they did not redistrict for 10 years. and and uh, and they also passed uh, the 1924 immigration law, cutting off immigration from much of the world. Um, so as before, which so Richard Nixon finally corrected. Uh, well, we think of Nixon in negative terms, tough. but he he did that, and he also gave us the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Well, and you know we we look at these things through kind of our current partisan lenses. And so that was actually Lyndon Johnson, but Richard Nixon played a di- another role that you would not expect. Well, the Asian immigration. Uh, that's right. That's, oh, yes, absolutely. So, you know, this fight over the filibuster is also not new. 
Um, it, in fact, was a longstanding liberal or progressive goal. And I apologize that the dog is uh, is going nuts and I can even move to a different room if it's necessary. Um, uh, but the um, uh, the fight over the filibuster is a longstanding effort to make the U.S. Senate work better and not be a graveyard of civil rights laws and voting rights laws, among other things. And in 1957, uh, there was a push to end the filibuster so voting rights could pass, just like today. And Richard Nixon was sitting in the seat that Kamala Harris sits in. He was the vice president. He was supported by the NAACP and was for voting rights. He worked with the liberals in the Congress, led by Hubert Humphrey, who was later on the person Nixon beat for president. And they were outsmarted and defeated by Lyndon Johnson, who hmm. was the Democratic leader and at that time was carrying water for the South. So, you know, when later we became at, later wound up uh, being the an important force for, for, for just for a few years justice. later, si- just a few years later, signed the Civil Rights, mm-hmm. fought for and signed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um you know, so we right now, as you know, we have two political parties and they've sorted into their ideological, philosophical camps. And so the Democrats are to the left and the Republicans are to the right. That was not always the way it was. And uh, you had uh, certainly the parties have changed their clothes over the years. The Republicans were the party pushing for voting rights. Right now are the party very much looking to restrict them. And George Wallace uh, was a, a Democrat, for example. In fact, uh, many of the the the, uh, the the Southern segregationists were Democrats at that time. The parties have totally flip flopped, but the the story you tell here is a lot about a lot of flip flopping over the years. Yeah, well, you know, the 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 uh, country is fairly young, and we're unusual in having only two parties in in. Uh, Europe or uh, places with a parliamentary system, we would undoubtedly have many more. Um, and uh, and you, you see a lot of uh, people keeping their partisan identity, but actually changing the positions they hold because the parties change their positions. The first law on campaign finance was enacted in 1907 after newspapers reported that a huge amount of New York life insurance money had been discreetly transferred to the Theodore Roosevelt campaign by J.P. Morgan's right-hand man. Has the uh, Tillman Act been an effective tool in combating wealthy campaign backers? Well, it has been, although that, too, was gutted by the Supreme Court. One one of the lessons uh, of of our history is – is that voting rights and the role of money in politics, what we would call campaign finance reform, have always been inextricably linked because they're really about how our democracy works. And in the early 20th century, um, in response to the gilded age of massive concentrations of wealth uh, and and in response to the, the changes brought by immigration, there was the progressive era and there was a real uh, effort to... Um, change how government worked. And and a lot of what the progressives did was focusing on democracy. It didn't used to be the case that big corporations paid for elections. Elections were paid for by political parties uh, and by public employees who had to give over part of their salary um, to the party to pay for the election. But when corporations and trusts 
as they were known, began to become dominant, they then started pouring their money into the political system. And Teddy Roosevelt got caught taking money from insurance companies. It was considered a very, very big scandal at the, at the time. Um, but Roosevelt responded by becoming indignant that his honor had been besmirched and he became an ardent supporter of reform. Um, and the, this law, the, the 1907 Tillman Act, banned corporations from giving money uh, in politics directly. It, it worked. I mean, there were gazillions of loopholes over the years, but it was a, an important part of the structure of, of campaign finance law until 2010, when this Supreme Court in the Citizens United decision basically overruled it. Um, and said uh, that the First Amendment, that this was not corrupting money, that it was glorious First Amendment speech, and that you could not stop these corporations from spending in this way. And uh, along with the voting cases, the campaign finance cases are where the Supreme Court has done its best to take a wrecking ball to the laws that have governed American democracy for a long time. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Maybe uh, Willie Nelson was a little too optimistic with that song. Uh, my guest today is Michael Waldman, who's president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. And we're talking about his latest book, which is, I think, uh, his fifth book. It's called The Fifth, The Fight to, to Vote from Simon and & Schuster. And before I get back to our conversation... Uh, I want you to know that anyone who signs up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a one-time contribution of $75 or more will receive a free copy of this book. You can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. Again, that's give to WBAI.org or... Uh, Call 212-209-2950, become a member for $75, and receive a copy, a free copy of The Fight to Vote from Michael Waldman. Uh, and uh, don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and, and thank you very much. We've been talking about – you mentioned the the um, the amendment that gave uh, – the 17th Amendment that uh, – gave the right to vote to the U.S. Senate, another bid to combat campaign finance abuses and, and counter big money. Um, how successful has that been? Yeah, that one maybe didn't work out quite as planned. It, but it is interesting that they saw that as a form of campaign finance law and campaign finance changes. State legislatures before that point appointed the senators and uh, they basically were for sale and um, you know, one senator was known as the senator from the railroads. Another senator would be known as the senator from copper. 
the copper industry because the legislatures had been so thoroughly corrupted by uh, the interests, as they were known then. And now and we so have senators they, who are the representatives of the coal miners. Well, and they get their industry. they get their support <laughs> directly rather than through the state legislature, and so they thought that giving people the vote uh, to uh, directly choose their senators would would uh, reduce the power of those big money interests. Um, and, you know, often that's been true. But as we know since then, that uh, the system of campaign finance that's grown up, um, especially based on really misguided U.S. Supreme Court decisions over the years that make it very hard to regulate the role of money in politics, that it turns out you can corrupt a senator directly rather than having to go through the state legislature. But that was their effort at reform. It was a good thing, I think, to have senators be elected directly. It may not have um, cured the corruption problem quite as much as they had hoped. The 19th Amendment gave women the right to vote. And you uh, note that that wasn't always responded to uh, in the best way. You write about Alice Paul, a young lawyer who led a march on Washington dressed as a Greek goddess and while riding a, a white horse. And the march attracted mobs of angry men who assaulted the women and sent 100 women to the hospital? Yeah, the story of women's suffrage, how women won the right to vote, is, is, is I continue to think, one of the under-discussed stories in American history. Because we all know that Susan B. Anthony, in 1848, they signed the Seneca Falls Declaration. But then not a whole lot happened after that. Um, and it was not until the early 20th century when young women who were more radical, many of them came back from studying abroad, and especially from in England, where uh, the women's suffrage movement was, was very rambunctious, said, you know, we really need to go for broke here and pass a constitutional amendment uh, so that women have the right to vote. And on the day before the presidential inaugural, Woodrow Wilson showed up at Union Station in Washington, and there was nobody there to greet him. They they thought there'd be a big crowd, and there was only the Princeton Glee Club, and they were belting out songs. And the New York Times wrote that they made up an enthusiasm for what they lacked in numbers. Uh, and and uh, finally, Wilson's aide said, uh, where are all the people? And they said, oh, they're all down on Pennsylvania Avenue. And it was the very first march for voting rights in Washington. It was 5,000 women, uh, a, a young uh, lawyer named Inez Mulholland on a white horse led the crowd. She was dressed as a Greek god. But as you say, there were 100,000 men. They were there for the inaugural. Many of them were drunk. They assaulted the marchers. They beat them up. They threw things uh, and they had to fight their way down Pennsylvania Avenue. And it was, you know, it was a very big deal. It, it got a ton of attention. It sort of overshadowed the publicity for the inaugural. The police chief of Washington, D.C. had to resign. And this scene shifted public opinion uh, to support for women's suffrage the sight of nonviolent marchers for voting rights being attacked. And of course, I hear that, uh, and I didn't know about this story until working on the book. To me, that sounds just like Selma. Mm -hmm. And this was really the Selma for women's 
suffrage. So how um, relevant and, to this history was the march from Selma to Montgomery? Well, that was one of the stories is that, you know, these victories don't generally speaking, don't come from courthouses. They don't come from judges. Sometimes they come from legislators, but only when pushed by creative protest. And the march from Selma to Montgomery is, as your listeners probably know, because it's such a um, legendary moment in American history, that disenfranchisement of black men and women was almost complete in the South. And there were changes made, there were victories, and even you had the Civil Rights Movement and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but everybody knew that the right to vote was the big one because that would determine who had power and who could really uh, set the rules going forward. And one of the things that's a fascinating story, of course, is Dr. King and the other protesters pushing, and Lyndon Johnson, who had just won the voting, the Civil Rights Act in, in, uh, in, in Congress. And there, uh, the, the, the relationship between King and Johnson, King saying, we need voting rights, and Johnson saying, we can't, we don't, we can't get it done. Don't do it now. And King and John Lewis and the other activists of the time said, well, they're going to go to Selma, and they're going to have a protest campaign they're going to show about the disenfranchisement. And on what was known as bloody, became known as Bloody Sunday uh, in March of 1965, peaceful protesters dressed in their church clothes, led by young John Lewis, of course, later became a revered member of Congress, marching over the Edmund Pettus Bridge and being attacked, assaulted. He had his skull fractured by uh, the state police. Um, and it was all televised nationwide. And what that visible symbol of racism, white supremacy, and injustice did was it kindled a a remarkable national movement that whole week of protest all over the country demanding voting rights. And so that Johnson, first feeling the pressure and then realizing he could use that pressure, then uh, went before Congress a week later and proposed the Voting Rights Act and gave a speech that's considered one of the greatest speeches by any public figure any American has done, where in his Southern accent, Johnson uh, famously said, uh, it is not just the Negro, as it was the uh, wording was used then, who must uh, overcome the legacy of hate and discrimination, but all of us, and we shall overcome. Mm. And of course, that was the, the hymn of the protest movement. And for Johnson, the Southerner, the segregationist, to, to use the words of the movement was an extraordinary moment. And Dr. King w- wept as he watched it. And the Voting Rights Act passed not that long after, and it transformed the South, it transformed the country. It created the multiracial democracy that so many of us took for granted for so many years. This was not really that fought over for many years after 1965. Um, but there was a backlash to the changing country. There was a backlash to the election of Barack Obama as president. There was a recognition after the Florida uh, recount of 2000 that the election system could be gamed and that you could suppress people's votes and really make a difference because things were really close. And, of course, that's now the world we're in now. Both the country created by the Voting Rights Act and the backlash that is trying to undo it. 
Well, the Voting Rights Act required federal Justice Department approval for states to change their voting laws. And wasn't that uh, in place until the Supreme Court's 2013 decision to strike down a key provision of it? In in the Shelby County case, and it was, again, it was something that worked quite well. Um, Chief Justice Roberts said, well, you know, basically he said that was then, this is now. Um, the racism of that kind is not such a factor. Black voters are voting at the same or higher rates than white voters, which was true. Um, and so we don't need this extraordinary remedy of the Justice Department having to approve these changes in states with a history of discrimination in voting. And this is where Ruth Bader Ginsburg did a famous dissent. And, and it was kind of the dissent that made her the notorious RBG in the popular imagination. And she said, that's like standing in a rainstorm and holding an umbrella and not getting wet. And therefore you say, well, I'm not wet. So I'll throw away the umbrella. Uh, it, they were basically making predictions about what would happen. And Ginsburg's prediction was right. Within hours, states across the South, especially began to implement voting restrictions that uh, affected black voters, especially um, that had been held up by the law previously in Texas. A few hours later, they put in place a very harsh voter ID requirement that was sort of notorious. It said it's the one that said that you could not use your University of Texas student ID as a government ID, but you could use your concealed carry gun permit. (laughs) Um, What a coincidence. And, but a federal judge in a lawsuit, my organization, the Brennan Center, brought ruled after a long trial that 608,000 registered voters in Texas did not have the paperwork at that moment. And these are not, oh, gee, maybe they don't ever want to vote anyway. These are registered voters. So these laws were, were real. They were bad. They had teeth. And what happened, so we all know about this 2013 case, uh, a lot of those laws, including the te- we, we won that Texas lawsuit, the courts stepped in and they either blocked or really softened those laws using another part of the Voting Rights Act. Well, that part was gutted by the Supreme Court last year in a case called Brnovich. Um, and basically, they said you can't really use this against this newfangled kind of voter suppression. So voters, uh, voters of color are really left undefended in the courts now, again, unless Congress steps up and acts and restores the strength of the Voting Rights Act and takes these other steps. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Michael Waldman, whose latest book is The Fight to Vote with a newly updated version. Actually, uh, the book was originally published uh, 2016, but uh, now 61 new pages, two new chapters. It's published by Simon and Schuster uh, in a paperback version. Uh, you mentioned that the Republican-led drive to restrict voting rights began two decades ago, well before Donald Trump was in in office. What were they doing uh, to change things then? Well, you know, uh a lot of the same stuff they want to do now, want to do now they were wanting to do then they developed this mythology of voter fraud and it and it's it's quite important that we all recognize that um these days 
happily, voter fraud is vanishingly rare. Um, you're more likely to be struck by lightning statistically than to commit in-person voter impersonation, for example, in the United States. Um, it used to be a big problem. It is not now. Um, it's an urban myth, but they're using it to try to come up with a rationale to restrict voting and or target voter registration. And, and it was a scandal that sort of fell down the memory hole. But in 2006, uh, it turned out that the U.S. attorneys, the, the federal prosecutors all over the country, that a lot of them had gotten fired. And it was unclear why they'd gotten fired. This is under George W. Bush's presidency. And it turns out that they were fired because they were getting political pressure from the White House to bring bogus voter fraud prosecutions. And when these Republican prosecutors, conservative Republican prosecutors, refused to do it, they got fired. And it turned into a a big scandal. And actually, the Attorney General of the United States, um, Alberto Gonzalez, had to resign because of the scandal. Um, and and uh, uh, Senator Schumer was one of the people investigating. Wait, wait, because he, he was, refused to bring bogus charges of voter fraud. Well, no, but Gonzalez was making fired people because they well, were. Well, he fired bogus. prosecutors who refused yeah. to bring bogus. Yeah. No, he was unfortunately he was not uh, on this. He was not. He was not. Um, a, a good guy. Uh, and Schumer and his young lawyer, Preet Bharara, exposed this. Um, and uh, it, it was a really big scandal and it very quickly got forgotten in the, in the uh, stream of, of all the other events that have happened. But so this push to claim voter fraud as, a, as an excuse to restrict the vote didn't start with Donald Trump. But as we know, he has taken it to uh, to an outlandish extreme, and nobody until uh, until Trump, nobody until this recent election has claimed that our elections are rigged, that they are stolen, that uh, voter fraud stole the election. And what's new? We've had these fights over voting before, but certainly not since 1861. At least has uh, has there been a, an assault? directly on the legitimacy of American democracy, as we see from Trump, and unfortunately, tens of millions of people now who believe his lies. Now, we only have a few minutes left, and uh, the, the, the added portions of your book are about this period. You argue that Donald Trump's actions during the three months between the election and the end of his term were the worst things he did as president, and arguably the worst thing any president has done in years. Uh, and that yeah. it, it echoes early eras of backlash against immigrants and black voters, um, including what um, has been called a big lie, uh, a, a phrase that we usually associate with Adolf Hitler. And and, and it really, you know, the, the truth, the big truth about the election was that it was an extraordinary success despite the pandemic, despite voter suppression. It was the in 2020, it was the highest voter turnout since 1900. And that's an amazing achievement. And it involved a lot of election officials from both parties. And uh, Congress actually provided $400 million for it. And voting rights groups worked with businesses, business, big businesses 
um, pr provided hundreds of thousands of poll workers. It really was a major effort to pull this thing off. And it was an extraordinary success. And it was a very well run and very safe and secure election. And so because of that, Trump's charges and claims are even more outrageous and are, in fact, even more of a big lie. The, the notion of the big lie was um, uh, first coined, the phrase was first coined, though not the idea, in a 1943 psychological study of Hitler by uh, the U.S. military. And, and they said that Hitler believed that if you told a lie that was big enough, and repeated it often enough, people would believe it because they would think, among other things, you couldn't possibly be making that up. And that is what Trump did. He repeated this outlandishly false thing over and over again. Even and before the election, he was preparing us with talk about how uh, mail-in ballots could be uh, a way of skewing the election. And remember, he even called for the election to be postponed. Basically, the more it looked like he was going to lose, the more he claimed the election was illegitimate. Vote by mail. There were a lot of things in the area of voting that have been controversial and partisan fights over the years. Vote by mail was not one of them. Most There are seven states, mostly in the West, that this is how they do voting, and it's been fine. And if you think about who actually votes absentee, you know, it's a lot of retirees in Florida, it's in Arizona. It's actually often Republicans who have the most success in the past have had the most success with absentee balloting. Um, but because of the pandemic, for the first time, a lot of people were going to be using it. And so Trump started saying, oh, it's all fraudulent. And what wound up happening, and we knew this would happen before Election Day, was the Democrats voted by mail and the Republicans voted in person. And uh, we knew and everybody everybody understood and the news media understood that this was called the the blue mirage, the red mirage or the blue shift, that the results on Election Day would be very incomplete. And they might show Republican dominance, but that when you counted all the votes that might not hold and you might get Democratic votes uh, counted because the, sometimes the laws require that they don't even start counting the ballots until after election day if they come in by mail. And Trump got up on election night and said, actually, I really won. And as we know, waged this campaign to undo the election, to undo American democracy. In the, in the last minute that we have left, uh, can you talk about the, your misgivings about how President Biden has handled this situation? Uh, you know, I would say that to me, this is one of the greatest challenges facing the country. Uh, and Biden has a lot on his plate. President Biden has a lot on his plate. He did not focus enough, I would say, on the fight to vote until recently. Um, uh, he gave a speech that I attended in Philadelphia in July in which he said that this was the gravest threat facing our democracy since the Civil War. But the action did not match that. As we know, in the last month, uh, he did really turn to this. He pushed to end the filibuster, to make it so that we could pass the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, to restore the strength of these laws, to set national standards. Uh, the Senate Democrats pushed pushed this to the floor. As we all know, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema, who both support these bills. These bills are supported, passed the House of Representatives. They would be signed by the president. They have the support of a majority of the Senate, but the filibuster 
the obstruction by the Republican minority has kept them from being law. And I have to and leave I'm, it there. I'm not filibustering. Uh, my guest is, has been Michael Waldman, whose latest book, The Fight to Vote, is published by Simon & Schuster. He's the president of Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Uh, and he was the director of speech writing for President Bill Clinton from 1995 to 1999, author of The Second Amendment, My Fellow Americans, POTUS Speaks, and three other books. He was also a member of the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, and it's been my great pleasure to have him on our show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic. So if you value the kind of informative deep dives into one subject, subject for the full hour that we bring you on the show weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. I hope you'll go online right now to give to WBAI.org or, or call 212-209-2950 and play a part in keeping community radio alive in New York City. Um, we depend 100% on our listeners for our funding. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a one-time contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large right now will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, The Fight to Vote, by my guest Michael Waldman. Please choose your, your giving level, but whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up and show your support for Leonard Lopate at Large and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And you might consider also becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. However you do it, it's important to keep this station going. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org right now. We're off tomorrow, but we hope you can join us again for Wednesday's show when investigative journalist and regular contributor to our program, Bob Henley, will discuss the latest generally underreported news about our area. We'll see you then.